Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our, prophet, our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Savior about whom this exalted word is written. We thank you for Jesus. We lift him up and pray that as we come to a study of a remarkable and yet difficult book in the Bible, Hebrews, that our eyes would be open to see Jesus more fully, more clearly. And may the radiance of the glory of God fall on us as the one who is fully God and fully man comes into our view. Enlarge our hearts to receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. If you have attended Grace Community Church for some time, that caught you a little bit off guard. In fact, you thought there was something up and you started laughing when I said, please stand <clears throat> For the reading of scripture because that's not where it typically comes in the sermon. Typically, I or another preacher will introduce himself, especially for those of you who are here for the first time. So if this is your first time at Grace Community Church, I want to say to you, welcome. We are delighted that you are here having chosen to worship with us um, uh, if, if indeed you have come before, you know that that's what typically happens at the first. After the welcome, uh, there are usually some uh, introductory uh, remarks about the passage as we sort of move towards that. Sometimes, though, before that even, we'll talk a little bit about what's going on to the service up to this point. For instance, once again... How blessed we are for the number of people who feel called to prepare our hearts for the word by leading us in worship. It's almost as if when we're singing that we're in the very presence of God. And God designed it that way for corporate singing to bring us into his presence for the truth of the word to fall on us. And I want to say this about the worship team. There was a good number up here today. We've got a couple of guys in the booth. Three, in fact, in the back in the booth. But look, I, I want to tell you this. We don't have nearly enough people serving in the worship team. We need more to, to lead up here. We need more in the booth. Perhaps you would consider the Lord speaking to you. This might be one of those times where the Lord is speaking to you about talking to David Calvert and saying, hey, how can I help? I would love to be a part of the worship team. So, 
on most Sundays, after the speaker introduces himself, offers a greeting to the people, typically he will introduce the message and move toward the reading of the text where we usually stand for the reading of Scripture as we did a few minutes ago. But I wanted to do it differently today because that's the way Hebrews begins. It just launches right into a sermon. So I thought, well, we'll do it that way today, and that will make a point. I mean, most of the New Testament epistles begin as our sermons usually begin. An introduction of the writer, a a greeting to the people who are reading the letter. Then there are words of blessing before the writer moves on to the body of his letter. And somewhere in the body or the clothes, there's usually some housekeeping or, or, or talking about specific things that are going on at the church uh, and, and, and so that's what we typically do at the first part in the introduction of the sermon. But again, not so with Hebrews. The writer jumps immediately into uh, 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 the text just as I did today. He is preaching a sermon, although he is preaching it through words on a scroll. Since Hebrews is a sermon... I want to encourage you somewhere early in this series, this week would be a great time to do it, to sit down and just read Hebrews from beginning to end in one sitting. You might want to use the uh, New Living Translation. It'll be easier to understand. By all means, at some point, use the translation that you typically use. This is the English Standard Version. A lot of you use the NIV. A lot of you use the King James Version. So go to the version you usually use, but you may want to read for the first time in the New Living Translation, which is a sort of an expanded translation. It is a translation rather than a paraphrase, but it's fairly easy to understand. I once heard about a a preacher who walked up to the pulpit to deliver his sermon, and he asked the congregation to stand and to turn in their Bibles. Actually, he didn't ask them to stand. He just said, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. And without another word of explanation, he just read from the beginning to the end. And then he sat down. A lot of people said it was the best sermon he ever preached. And why wouldn't it be? My goodness, it's the book of Philippians. But let me ask you this. Do you think that he truly preached a sermon when he did that? I mean, in some ways, absolutely. It was a powerful word. It was God's word, in fact. On the other hand, it was not a sermon in the classic sense. You could more accurately say that he was reading a sermon that was initially presented in letter form. The way that sermons were preached in the first century, century... Century, too. Followed a pattern that we find in Nehemiah 8, verses 5 to 8. Look at this. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, just elevated like I am here, slightly elevated here. He was above all the people. Doesn't mean he was superior. Just means his position. And as he opened it, all the people stood. By the way, most likely Ezra was sitting How would you like to do the sermon that way? Sometimes I hear people say, well, I don't like that church. The preacher was sitting on a stool. Well, that's the way they did it in the first century. And the people stood. And we also learn in Ezra that they stood in pouring rain. As the word was preached. So the next time it's raining, again, just to get a feel for it, we'll go outside. I'll sit down. (laughs) You stand up and I'll just preach, okay? 
So, verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. The only time I get that is if, you know, I say we're closing the service early today. Lifting up their hands, and they bowed their hearts, excuse me, they bowed their heads, and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Hearts would be as accurate. They bowed their heads And they bowed their hearts and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, and then he gives a long list of Levites. Others of the Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's what a sermon is. You read the text and then you say... This is what it means. That's the way Paul's letters were intended. For people to discuss them and to think about them. Paul would use little snippets of hymns in his letters. And they were intended for people to digest and to think about in community. The proclamation in first century synagogue worship was pretty much the the pattern that Ezra established when he preached to, to the people. Think about it. That's the pattern we find in Luke 4 when Jesus is in the synagogue at Nazareth. He read the word and then he, he commented on it. And his comments kind of been a lot of trouble because he was reading from Isaiah 60 or 61, 60 I think it is. And he said, this day, he was talking about the Messiah. He said, this day this prophecy is fulfilled in your sight. I'm the one this is talking about. And people didn't like it and so they stoned him. Also, <clears throat> when Paul and Barnabas were in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia, uh, they, the word was read and then they said, brothers, do you have a word of encouragement for us? We can see that you're preachers. We can see that you're, you're ones who pro- proclaim the word. Do you have a word for us? And then they shared uh, Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. The book of Hebrews was written in the manner of a first century synagogue sermon, although it did read like a letter at the very end. It's been said that Hebrews was a a sermon with Psalm 110 as its primary text because it's used four times. Lots of scripture in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is one of those awesome books that takes us all over scripture. There are certain ones that do that. Acts does that. Genesis does that. Uh, The Psalms do that. Certain books, a lot of the Gospels... Take us all over scripture so you get to learn not only about that particular book, but you understand how scripture works as a whole. If you're wondering at this point when we're going to get to our um, text, let me assure you that we're going to spend time today in the first four verses. And then also next week we're going to break down those four verses which are so important. Uh, But... There is probably more work to do with introducing the book of Hebrews than there is almost any book in the Bible except for the Psalms, maybe Revelation, possibly Genesis, although I doubt you would need to do as much introductory work for Genesis. So it's, it's, a, it's very important that we understand these foundational things about Hebrews so that we can really move forward. Um, so... Let's take a little time and, and, and think about the book of Hebrews, which was a sermon accompanied by an exposition of the passages 
of the Old Testament passages that were shared and, and, and how they pointed to Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled all the law and was the perfect sacrifice. Why did the author of Hebrews use so much Old Testament scripture and why do I keep calling him the author rather than using his name? Well, about the author. Here we go. <laughs> Uh, We don't know who wrote Hebrews and where he was when he wrote it, who he was writing to, where the people were, and what were the circumstances that that precipitated this sermon in the first place. Why did the, the author feel compelled to write to these people? It was accepted uh, very early in church history the book of Hebrews was, as divinely inspired scripture. And, and if you had to choose a person that was, was thought to be the author in, in the early church, it would have been the Apostle Paul. People said, well, Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, but even then, uh, some of the more serious-minded students of the word had their doubts about that and most agreed with Origen who said early in the third century as to who wrote Hebrews only God knows Um, even though we are short on stated information we can nonetheless get a pretty good feel about some of the answers of the questions that I raised about the location of the people why the the author was writing to them Um, but probably the most difficult question is to, to nail down is who is the author and look some of you are going to disagree with me, and that's okay. We talked in our, our, our Grace Connection class this morning. There are some things that we hold with a closed fist, like the Trinity, the virgin birth of Jesus, and salvation by grace through faith. And there are a lot of things that are in the open hand that we, that we keep in open hand, like the use of spiritual gifts. Are they all in use, and how are they to be used? Uh, second coming of Christ is here. Exactly how it's going to be at the end times is here. People have disagreed through the years within the camp of orthodoxy. What do you think the authorship of Hebrews is? Here or here? It's big time here. It just, like I say, from the very earliest days, this was considered to be the word of God. I am certain that some of you are convinced that Paul was the author. And I don't want to pick a fight, but I want to give you a few things to think about because people are going to say, who wrote the book of Hebrews? There are 13 epistles or letters that are attributed to Paul, several of which were written to churches and, and, and several of which were written to friends. And, and they all begin with the same word. Do you know what that word is? Paul. Paul, because that's the way letters were written in that day. The, the first century letters began with the writer's name. It would be like you got a bunch of letters from me, and they all started with Brad, teaching elder at Grace Community Church. Grace and peace be to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's the way uh, letters were written. They had a little bit of a formal air with them, and you don't see that in Hebrews. Furthermore, the author of Hebrews identifies himself in 2.3, Hebrews 2.3 is one who had heard the gospel from others. Paul made it crystal clear in the book of Galatians, verses 11 and 12, chapter 1, that he didn't hear the gospel from man. He heard it directly from Jesus. So whether that is evidence that Paul didn't write it or not, I don't know. When you think, there are so many things in Hebrews that you see that remind you of Paul's writing. So it's clearly understood why people would say, yeah, this is the Apostle Paul, but he has different theological emphases also. 
Paul emphasizes union with Christ. Hebrews does not. Hebrews emphasizes the high priesthood of Christ. Paul does not. But, but look, it all comes together. And Paul emphasized different things in different letters. So that in and of itself is not enough to say that he didn't. Apollos, Barnabas, those are pretty good guesses. Luke, probably not. And again... Look, my best guess is that Paul didn't write the letter, but my best guess is based on other people's best guess, you know? So, really, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but again, it doesn't matter. And the discussion about authorship is not nearly as important as some of the others, since those who accept uh, other questions, since those who accept the authority of Scripture have always accepted Hebrews as an important part of Of God's revelation to us. Without giving you the details. That would take a considerable amount of time. Look you do the same thing in your job some of you. Um, I got to tell you sometimes it feels like I will study for hours. In order to say two or three sentences in a sermon. (laughs) You know it's like really that's all I'm going to say about that yes really that's all but that's my job is to study at that level so I'm not going to give you all the details but let me tell you what I've gleaned from my study a lot of this I've I've known before but I've read it in detail this these past few weeks um and and there these issues in the end weigh far more heavily about um the meaning of Hebrews and the understanding of Hebrews than authorship does most likely, Hebrews was written to a church in Rome. The writer says at the very end, it takes on the feel of a letter at the very end. And he says, those from Italy greet you. So probably the writer is outside of Italy and he's writing back and he said, hey, those who are from Italy that are here with me send their greetings to you. You know them, they know you. So likely it was written to Rome and it was written to a group A church made up primarily of Jewish believers. Certainly there were Gentiles or could have been Gentiles in the congregation. But if there were, they would have been familiar with the Old Testament scripture that the writer used. Because when he used Old Testament scripture, and this is true almost all the way through the New Testament. He would use, this this author would use uh, scripture from the Septuagint. What was the Septuagint? It was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The reason that came about was because after the Babylonian captivity, Jews were scattered far and wide all over, the, over what became the Roman Empire. And there were a lot of people where the Jews went that said, you know, there's something about you guys. I mean, you're not like any of the pagans around, and I'm a pagan, and you're just, you're just different from us. Who is this God that you serve? And because these Jews were speaking languages all across the, 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 the scope of the languages spoken in that day, Greek was the common language. And so they said, let's translate the Old Testament into the Greek. So when the author of Hebrews quotes an Old Testament verse, you might go back to it and say, hmm, that doesn't look exactly the same. What's up with that? Here's what's up with that. Our translations of the English Bible have Hebrews. I mean Hebrew. It's, they're translated directly from the Hebrew. The Septuagint translated from the Hebrew into the Greek. And when the 
Old New Testament authors would talk about the Old Testament, they would translate from that Greek translation, rather, or our the English translations that we have come from that Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now you're completely confused, and I am going to go actually even deeper into some stuff here in just a moment, and then we'll get back to, to, to relatively smooth waters. I've been trying to think about how to, how to do this. I think maybe the best way is to try to have somewhat of a continuum on the stage here. Jesus was crucified, resurrected somewhere around A.D. 30, 33, somewhere along in there. Some 10 years later, uh, the Gentiles were converted. Well, in the mid to late 40s, the gospel spread like wildfire. A church was established in Rome. And a lot of the early believers were Jewish. In Rome, there were Jewish and Gentile believers. So along about AD 48-49, the Jews in Rome were trying, the Jewish believers were trying to convince their Jewish brothers and sisters, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He is the one. Well, the Jews who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah fought against them. And they were riots created almost. There were these huge disturbances. And it was not in the emperor's best interest for these disturbances to go on. So in AD 49, he said, all Jews out. Believing Jews, unbelieving Jews, they were all Sent out of the Roman, out of Rome, out of the city of Rome. They went to other places in the Roman Empire. Now, when they were exiled, their property property would have been confiscated. Their homes, all of their money, everything would have been taken away from them. And so they're sent away to exile. But there were Jews, so they made it back. You know, they had they had ways of getting money. That, that's just true about the Jewish people. So somewhere in the 50s, they were allowed to come back into Rome. And probably the best guess is the book of Hebrews is written somewhere in the early to mid-60s. Now what happens in AD 64 is that Rome burns. And Nero is blamed for caring less that... You know, of course, the, the, the popular idea is that he fiddled while Rome um, burned. And certainly there were people who said he sang about the destruction of Rome. He was a, he was a bit crazy. But, but Nero <clears throat> said, I've got to shift the blame. Who can I blame? Christians. They were the one that caused the mess back in 49, now that I've done a little investigation. And Jews are despised, but... Christians are absolutely detested. And so he ordered persecution. And from AD 64 on, martyrdom became part of the experience of being a believer. So does all of that make sense? The book of Hebrews was probably written right here. These people could look back 13 to 14 years ago and remember the persecution that they suffered because of their stand for Jesus. And it's like, hey, we didn't cause the riots. Well, the way the government looked at it, because of your beliefs, because of the things that you stated to other people, it made people mad, and so you're the ones to blame. wonder if anything like that could ever happen in our country. I don't know. Uh, so, but that's what, that was stated. You're at fault. Now, you know what happened from here 
A.D. 49 to A.D. 62, 63, somewhere along in there. Not only did the government despise Christians, but the Jews were furious with them. Look at what you've done. You caused us to be exiled. You caused us to lose everything. And some of these Jews, these Jews who believed Jesus were just walking away. They said, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I, maybe, I, maybe I was wrong. I mean, how could this be the right thing when everything has happened? And, and now, there's been some time, and, and the church is dwindling. I mean, it'd be like you come here today, you see the number of people here, and then within about four or five years, it's just a handful. Some people estimate it was like 15 or 20 people left in this church. I don't know where those numbers come from. But it was a pretty small group, which is amazing to think that the book of Hebrews was written to such an important church. I mean, most of us would say, that church is dead. Let's just start a new church or incorporate them into some other place. But the writer of Hebrews wrote this magnificent treatise about the superiority of Christ. And and, and these Jews were saying, these Jewish believers were saying, is Jesus enough? I mean, I've been told that I need to abandon the law. Some people say you need to hang on to the law, but you can add Jesus on. But let me ask you truly, is Jesus enough? Is he worth losing everything that I have, my, my home, my friends, my standing in, in society as a Jew, and maybe even my life? Is Jesus enough? Well, Hebrews is written to answer that question. So... The first four verses of Hebrews, which comprise one long sentence in the Greek, let us know right from the beginning where we're heading. Once again, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. Let me just stop right here for just a moment. Do you think we're living in the last days? We are. So did the author of Hebrews. And you know what? He was. First century believers were living living in the last days. Let me give you just an Old Testament example that sort of helps bring this into perspective. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned and God pronounced judgment? When he pronounced judgment on Satan, what did he say? There's coming one who will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but you'll crush his head. Genesis 3.15, who is that pointing to? Jesus. It's clearly Jesus. So he said, I'm going to bring a man who is going to stop the end of Satan. When Cain was born, what did Eve say? I've got me a man. In fact, she said, I've got the man. God was talking about in Genesis 3.15. Was Cain the man? (laughs) No, he was a man. Sinful. How interesting that the very first man was a murderer. The first person ever born to what had been perfect parents. They weren't then. You and your spouse are the only perfect parents left in the entire history of the world. 
until, the, until they become teenagers and then, then you're no longer perfect. And so, when the author of Hebrews says, in these last days, God has spoken to us. He was telling the truth about the first century being the last days. These are the last days as well. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, and more about that in a moment, by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's one of the home group questions. What do you think that means? The answer doesn't come until next week, but you dig it out. You figure it out yourself. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's talking about Jesus. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Notice that the writer assumes that the audience gave the Old Testament scripture its proper authoritative place. It was just assumed that the readers believed the Old Testament to be God's word. Tim Keller said this, unless you have an authoritative view of the Bible, you've got a God that you created and you're going to be lonely. Unless you hold this book to be the word of God, you have a God that you have created. If, if you say, well, I, I just don't believe that's God. I mean, my God would never do that. I, I, to which I would agree, yes, he is your God. It's not this God because this book says very clearly that this God would do the things. Oftentimes that you say, no, my God would never do that. Unless you have an authoritative view of the Bible, you have a God that you have created and you are going to be lonely. I recognize that it might not be that simple, that clear cut for some of you. I mean, if you're here at church today or you're listening to this on a podcast, uh, if you're listening to this sermon on a podcast, if you're skeptical of the accuracy and truth of Scripture, can I just challenge you To go into this study of Hebrews assuming that the Bible is God's word. Suspend your unbelief long enough to give it a go with Hebrews and say, I believe God, help me believe this. I believe that this is your word. And if at the end you find the scripture inadequate, you can return to your doubt and skepticism. Now, you might reasonably and understandably say, how can I do that? How can I suspend my doubt to see if I believe only to return to my doubt? Well, I'll address that question in just a few minutes. We're nearing the end of the message. In the opening words of Hebrew, the author, again, assuming the confidence that his readers had in the Old Testament, said essentially, in the past, God spoke to us through prophets who gave us the law and direct messages from God. In these last days, he has spoken to us through Jesus, who, as creator, sustainer of the universe, and redeemer, is God. He didn't use those exact words, although he did when he talked about Jesus being the exact imprint of the, 
of the father's nature. Again, we get to that next week. But, but they knew that that's exactly what he was saying. He's the beginning. He's the middle. He's the end. He's everything. It's not that the author was saying the old was back then. Forget about it. Just don't worry about the old. We've got the new. How many times? Look, I know some of you feel way more comfortable in the New Testament than you do the Old Testament. I get that. So do I. The Old Testament is complex and you really have to get in it if you're going to try to understand what was being said. But, but you have to understand that God was not saying that was then, this is now. It's not that he, that was the story of the law. Now we've got it. That didn't work out too well. So now we've got a new story. What he was saying is, Jesus is God's final word to us. He is not God's final act. I mean, God is going to judge the world. But all of that is already prophesied in his word. Jesus is God's final word to us. Explained through the New Testament, which in essence is the Old Testament rewritten, understood in light of the cross. So the Old Testament is... Is pointing to Jesus. And and now that Jesus is here. We're understanding. Oh. That's what he was saying all along. You've had that happen haven't you? You read somebody's email to you. And you are fired up hopping mad. How dare. You know when you call them up. and And you say what did you mean? And they say oh wait a minute. And they say something and you're like. Oh, okay. That was actually a compliment. You know, I'm sorry. I, I, I misunderstood that. Now, I, you go back and read the email, and it's entirely different. Because the missing piece is plugged in. That's essentially what happened when Jesus was revealed. Everything became clear. In the Old Testament, the cross was concealed in the New Testament. The cross along with the resurrection is, is revealed as the very centerpiece of God's plan for redeeming mankind. In the Old Testament, Jesus was anticipated. His miraculous conception, his righteous life, his sinless life, and his servant nature. Even the crucifixion is described in detail in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And the meaning of it, although nobody understood it no one anticipated the cross with the possible exception of Mary of Bethany and that's highly unlikely and regardless it's a topic for another day the book of Hebrews and look if all of it's just kind of swimming in your head and maybe hopefully it makes some sense but 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 get this the book of Hebrews as much as any book in the Bible helps us to see that God does not have two different stories in two testaments. But he has one story. And that whole story comprises the old covenant and the new covenant. And Jesus is at the center. It's not that Jesus is a different word. He's the final word from God. The Old Testament, the prophets, the law, it's all been leading to something. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I'm eager to show you next week from this text how the author of Hebrews 
is putting Jesus at the center of his message and he's putting Jesus at the center of the entire Bible. You can probably get a sense of that already in this one sentence. By the way, one long sentence in the Greek. I want us to close this morning thinking about a day in Jesus' life that aligns with the teaching of Hebrews. You remember at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. They went up to the mountain. What happened? There's this brilliant light, and there is Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. The three of them are talking together. And Peter, who doesn't know what to say, uh, and should remain silent, but never, ever did he remain silent that I know of. And that's why I identify so closely with Peter. You ought to have not said that. You know how many times I... I say, I shouldn't have said that ten times to saying, wow, I wish I'd have said that. Um, Peter says, hey, this is really cool. All three of you, you here, let's build a monument for each of you. And you know what happened. This voice from heaven comes, this great thick cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. As you and I would have done, Peter, James, John, fall on their faces in terror. And then Jesus says, don't be afraid. Get up, let's go. You know what God was saying? Now is the time to listen to my son. That was the time of the law. When they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone. Jesus was there alone. When they came down off the mountain, they're trying to make sense of it. They get to the mountain and there's quite a commotion. A man comes running up to Jesus and he said, Jesus, my son has this condition and it throws him all over the place into the fire and, and, and in, in the water. And, and I ask your disciples to cast out the demon that's in him and they just couldn't. And Jesus rebuked. The disciples for not being able to do it. Um, and, and then he talked to the man. The father recognized what scripture teaches. That all who are apart from Jesus are under the power of Satan. Now in verse 4 where it talks about angels. When you read through the book of Hebrews you're like. What's up with the angels? You know it's like what, what, what is that about? Well, they thought about the reality, the spiritual reality, far more than we do. Because we're scientifically minded, and if we don't see it, it doesn't exist. If we can't prove it, if it doesn't... Well, they understood, and, and, and the New Testament is loaded with talk about spiritual warfare that we often miss because we're not thinking that it's really going on. The father realized that this boy, his boy, was controlled by Satan. And scripture says, the New Testament says, all who don't believe in Jesus are blinded by Satan. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 4. You don't believe the gospel, you're blinded by Satan. The author of Hebrews uh, said in chapter 2 that Jesus became one of us in order to destroy the one who has the power of death. That is Satan. The scripture presents this truth. If you do not believe that Jesus was who that he said he was. And that indeed he is the only way to God. Then you are in 
the grip of the devil. Look, we all tend to think that what we believe is right, don't we? What I believe is right. That's essentially what I'm saying. I think that what I believe, based on my understanding of Scripture, is right. If you think that you're justified by your good works according to the law, then you're right. See, that's where these, these Hebrews were, these, these, these Jewish believers were like this. Maybe I got it wrong. I mean, how can it be right when so much has gone wrong? Maybe, maybe it is the law. And a lot of people think that way. I have to be good enough. Whether you think that, if you're a Buddhist, if you're a Muslim, a Hindu, even if you claim to be an atheist, Scripture teaches that your mind is being kept from the truth. And you're in bondage. There's so much more about war. In scripture again than we tend to think about. It's not that we don't acknowledge it. We just don't think about it. You don't have to believe that all those apart from Christ are under the bondage of Satan. But you should acknowledge it's what God's word teaches. If you suspect that Jesus is indeed the way to God. And and you wish you could believe it. But you just don't. Then let me. Encourage you to consider Jesus' encounter with this desperate father who asked Jesus to heal his son. Jesus said, all things are possible to the one who believes. And the man cried out, Lord, I believe. Help me believe. That's a good prayer. And you know what? Jesus delights in answering you when you pray that prayer. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, and you're just trying to figure it all out, cry out to the Lord, I believe, Lord, help me believe. If He doesn't take the blinders off of your eyes, you've got no hope. But you are given the privilege of saying, help me, Lord. He loves to respond to that prayer. And speaking of prayer, let's pray. Father, we know how those Jewish believers felt. There are times that doubt creeps into our hearts and minds. And with everything against us, we either struggle with doubt or we become bitter or we trust. And Lord, uh, it's not within us to just trust you. Even that we need to come from you. So may our prayer be that of the desperate father. I believe. Help me believe. As we come to this magnificent sermon. It was preached on paper. To the believers who were beleaguered. Who were troubled. Who had much against them. May we see Jesus. May we see the radiance of God. May it come alive in our hearts. And may we be drawn to your word. For you said faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we need to believe. We need to understand. 
May our understanding come through the faith that we acknowledge as being your gift to us. Help us believe in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and read the text with us? From Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's read together. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs.